Good morning. Good morning. Good morning, everybody. You're very welcome to this, the 14th in Mason Hayes and Curran's series of master classes for in-house counsel. My name is Declan Black. I'm the head of litigation in Mason Hayes and Curran, and it's my job only to welcome you all, which I do. Uh, but I am reminded of the last time I was in this room surrounded by lawyers, which was actually in December at the MHC Christmas party. And I can tell you that the atmosphere was somewhat less respectful. So thank you for that. Um, in fact, we had a very good turnout for that party, but uh, I didn't realise that if we really wanted a draw, that we should have cancelled the band and, in fact, scheduled a discovery talk, because it really seems to bring out the crowds. <coughs> I suppose it's not that surprising um, that issues of discovery and privilege are of real interest to in-house counsel, given that the burden of complying with discovery orders often falls to a large extent on in-house counsel, and in addition to that burden, both in terms of its operational involvement, the cost, the time, and the risk of getting it wrong, there's also the additional risk of managing uh, to ensure that you retain privilege insofar as is possible over certain communications. And, of course, with managing that risk, there's always, I suppose, the issue that if privilege is lost, it tends to be the fault of the lawyers, at least in the minds of the business executives. My own most memorable experience uh, with discovery and privilege uh, came many years ago, actually in a debt collection case, when I was asked to advise in relation to privilege and also relevance uh, in an exchange between a bank executive and an in-house lawyer. And it was a very short exchange, and it ran like this. The bank executive emailed the lawyer and said, um, Joe has been giving us the runaround again. What are we going to do with him? And the lawyer's emailed response was, go after him with a machete. <laughs> so I considered was this legal advice, and I considered whether or not it fell into the relevant category, and we discovered the material, and happily the case settled. Um, I can't remember whether it was on very favorable terms. Um, but anyway, uh, discovery is a burden, it is a risk, but it also is a blade. And that should not be forgotten, because whilst you have to manage the burden and manage the risk, uh, it's also a tool which can inflict serious damage on opponents in litigation. And very importantly, it can operate to shift the balance uh, of the settlement dynamic, and it's a useful tool to use uh, to bring about resolution of litigation outside of the courtroom. So this morning, we're very lucky to have three lawyers who are well-versed in the arts of discovery and hopefully will help you in managing the burden and the risk and perhaps even wielding the blade. We have first Andrew Fitzpatrick, who is a junior counsel, uh, a very senior junior counsel, and is involved in uh, uh, most of the significant commercial litigation uh, that is ongoing in Ireland, and there is probably hardly any issue on discovery that he hasn't actually litigated. So we're very lucky to have Andrew with us uh, this morning. 
Following Andrew, you will have Maureen O'Neill, who is a partner in Mason, Hayes and Curran, who practices in competition law and state aid. Maureen previously was with Clifford Chance, Alan Lillovery and McCann Fitzgerald, and she has a lot of experience uh, in uh, the particular questions of maintaining privilege over documents in the context of competition law investigations, which is a particularly focused uh, field, but the issue of privilege arises in a very sharp context, particularly if you're the subject or if your business is the subject of a dawn raid. And lastly, but not least, we have uh, another MHC partner, Paul Convery, who's a commercial litigation partner. I don't think Paul has ever been in a case where there wasn't discovery of some sort or the other. Um, most recently, though, for the last number of years, his life was taken over uh, by the Thema Fund litigation, which was the litigation regarding, or the Irish end of litigation regarding the collapse of Bernie Madoff Investment Services. Um, that discovery started off with a potential pool of 75 million documents, and Paul will give some practical insights in relation to how to manage the burden of discovery with particular reference to that case. So please, Andrew, you may take the podium. Thank you. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Um, to pick up on the reference to the Thema case, there is a quote from Judge Clark when considering the question of discovery in that case where he says, discovery in modern litigation has now become a monster, and it is a monster which must be tamed. And one of the reasons why he made that quote is because the cost of discovery, the cost of seeking discovery, making discovery, and reviewing discovery in commercial litigation has risen exponentially over the last decade as the Irish economy has grown and then contracted. And at the moment, it does present a real barrier to effective litigation and to efficient resolution of litigation in Ireland. Um, and w many measures have attempted to be taken to try and limit the consequences of discovery litigation at the moment, and to be frank with you, most of them have failed. And I think part of the reason for that failure is because lawyers, and when I say lawyers in particular barristers, have a rather, I think, unrealistic view as to the effect that discovery can have in a case. And Declan spoke about how discovery can be ablaze, and it certainly can. But in many contexts, it's very hard for, I think, perhaps for you as in-house counsel to see who are at the coalface of putting together discovery at 2 o'clock in the morning when you're reviewing the 50,000th email from the accounts department on a particular topic to identify how any of this could be of any possible relevance to the case in which you're involved. And at the moment, there is, I think, a real need for lawyers and in particular barristers, but I say barristers because it's usually the barristers who put together the, either the advice on proofs, which frames the request for discovery, that will frame the way in which discovery is considered in the case, uh, or the junior counsel who drafts the actual request for discovery and, out of a sense of caution, drafts the request for discovery as broadly as he or she possibly can. I think at the moment there's a real need for uh, those lawyers in particular to reconsider the, the benefit of discovery in commercial litigation because without a, a rethink, I think the costs of discovery are likely to rise even further than the costs in which they were in Thema, which I think Paul will tell you were well in excess, I think well in excess of 10 million, um, or certainly 5 million. But this case, this talk isn't so much about discovery in general, it's about privilege and legal professional privilege insofar as it applies to in-house counsel. And in privilege insofar as it applies to in-house counsel is, I think, underpinned by the unique 
role which in-house counsel play, which I think is specific to in-house counsel as lawyers, in that you tend to have a dual function of both providing legal advice to your employer, but also, and ever more commonly, you have a role, a management and leadership role, in providing advice on strategy and policy. And legal professional privilege only applies to the first of those contexts rather than the second. And the, the important factor is trying to draw the dividing line between what constitutes legal advice, which will be privileged, and advice on strategy and policy, which won't. So I'm not certain if this is... I'll try and scroll through all of that. So they're the topics that I will try and cover in the 20 minutes that uh, I have to get through my talk. And if you see me speed up very soon, you'll know that I've just been shown a blue card from uh, the people down the back, so you'll know my talk is about to end very quickly. Um, the first point, and it's a very basic point, and it's a point you're all aware of, is that legal professional privilege obviously does extend to communications between in-house counsel who were employed by a particular firm and other uh, officers or employees uh, within that firm. And the leading case on that topic is the decision of Alfred Crompton Amusement Machines Limited against Customs and Excise Commissioners. And the quote uh, is in your pack, and it's a, it's a well-known quote from Lord Denny, Master of the Robes. And he emphasised in concluding, if there was ever a need for the conclusion to be drawn, that legal professional privilege applies to communications between in-house counsel and their employers, that the reason why that privilege must apply is that in-house counsel are, are qualified lawyers, obviously. They're subject to the same duties of professional etiquette to their clients, and also, as solicitors or barristers, they're subject to the same obligations to the court, uh, obligations of fidelity and um, disclosure. And because of that, Lord Denning was of the view that there was simply no question that legal professional privilege applied to communications with in-house counsel. And because of that, the, uh, his quotes in Alfred Crompton were followed in this jurisdiction by Judge Griffin in the Supreme Court decision of Garrity and the Minister for the Local Government. And again, the quote is uh, from Judge Griffin's judgment is given there. But because legal professional privilege is so rooted in the idea or the, the, the principle that advice given by a qualified lawyer to his client, whether the client is his employer or uh, someone who has retained him via private practice, that the courts have been reluctant in the past and indeed more recently to extend the concept or the parameters of legal professional privilege to advice given on the law by people who are not lawyers. And the most recent manifestation of that reluctance is the decision of the <clears throat> United Kingdom Supreme Court in the Regina Prudential PLC case against the Special Income Tax Commissioners. And in that case, discovery was sort of uh, information legal advice communicated by in-house accountants working for Prudential on a tax law. And they had given the specific advice to their employer about the implications of certain provisions of the UK tax code. And the case was made before the UK Supreme Court that because that was undoubtedly legal advice, that must be um, covered by the traditional parameters of legal advice privilege. And in a rather unusual judgment, given by Lord Neuberger, where he said, I accept the logic of everything that you are saying, except for the fact that for the last 400 years, legal advice privilege has only ever been covered advice given by qualified lawyers to their clients or to their employers. And because that has always been the historical context in which the privilege is applied, we are simply not prepared to extend the privilege to cover legal advice given by non-lawyers, albeit on a specific legal, legal topic. And there's a very powerful dissent by Lord Sumption um, where he says that, that just doesn't make any sense. If the logic 
is that it extend, that the privilege extends to legal advice, and we're all agreed that it's legal advice that's being given here. Why shouldn't it uh, attach to legal advice given by in-house accountants when frequently legal advice on the tax code is given by accountants? Uh, he said, well, why shouldn't we extend the privilege? And the majority was against him. And it was of the view that because it has always been so, it must continue to be so until the, uh, the I'd have to say the Oireachtas, the legislature, um, made a specific decision to extend that privilege. So because legal professional privilege, apply, as far as it applies to in-house counsel, is rooted very much in the concept of legal advice given by lawyers, the privilege that applies to in-house counsel isn't a specific or newly created category of privilege. It's privilege that has always applied. And so in order for communications from in-house counsel to their employers uh, or to uh, officers within their firm to be covered by privilege, it must fall within one of the existing categories of legal professional privilege. And there are, as you know, really two existing categories, legal advice privilege and lit litigation privilege. And I think generally legal advice privilege would be of more, uh, more direct relevance to your day-to-day -day, uh, duties as in-house counsel because it's, that's what you're doing on a day-to-day -day level with your employers. And a simple definition of what legal advice privilege is is given there. It's communications between a lawyer and a client which were intended to be confidential in nature, which for the purpose of, or, uh, of giving or receiving legal advice. And there's a number of elements of that definition which have attracted a certain amount of attention in, in the recent past. And the first is what exactly counts as legal advice. Because lawyers are asked for their views uh, on many different topics uh, on a day-to-day -day basis, and that is even more so the case with in-house counsel. But the privilege only applies to that discussion or that advice which counts as le legal advice. And in a decision in the litigation, the Three Rivers District Council against Bank of England litigation, which we're just going to come back to again and again over the course of this talk, the case was made by um, lawyers acting on behalf of the Bank of England that legal advice should encompass any statement made by a lawyer, if I just get the, which constitutes guidance as to what should prudently and sensibly be done in a relevant legal context, which sounds a pretty sensible definition of what legal advice would be, what should prudently and sensibly be done in a relevant legal context. And the court held that, in fact, that is not what the definition of legal advice is. That's too broad a definition and could, in fact, encompass anything a lawyer said because lawyers tend to be acting in a legal context. So if they're giving guidance on what should prudently be sensibly done in a legal context, it really could cover anything they say. And the Court, the, the, um, court of Appeal adopted quite a narrow definition, uh, but uh, the definition that has always applied, and that is legal advice is statements made which constitutes advice on one's legal rights, liabilities, duties, or obligations, or remedies. So that if you think about it, it's quite an, a narrow definition, and that, but that is the definition which applies to, to legal advice privilege. It, that's the first limitation uh, on legal advice privilege. The second is that legal advice privilege, in contradistinction to litigation privilege, which we'll come to in a moment, doesn't attach to communications between lawyers and third parties. It only attaches to communications between lawyers and their clients uh, or their employers. And that can have a specific effect, I think, in in-house counsel, where if you take the situation where an employer or a particular company is working on a particular deal uh, or a merger or acquisition that it's about to be engaged in, 
and the in-house counsel is preparing legal advice for the board and needs to get to draw on the advice or the expertise of the corporate finance advisors who are advising on the deal. Any documents provided by the corporate finance advisors to the in-house counsel for the purpose of providing advice to the board would not be covered by, by legal advice privilege. And that's something that's important to remember. And there's cases both dating from the 19th century and very recently which make that point. The principal case in that uh, is the case of Wheeler against Le Merchant where the solicitor drew on advice from an accountant and, prepare, and fur, uh, furnished the advice that he'd been given to, the, uh, to his um, superiors. And the court held that the documents that the accountant had given to the solicitor for the purpose of preparing that advice weren't covered by uh, legal advice privilege. And that then obviously can have significant effects uh, for in-house counsel when they're given their advice. And one saw a very unusual example of how that uh, had an effect uh, on legal advice in the case of Three Rivers District Council against Bank of England number five, which was obviously the preceding case. And it's just important to understand very briefly the facts of, of that litigation. <coughs> The case concerned the collapse of the Bank of Credit and Commerce International in England in, the, uh, in 1992, and it was an action brought, in fact, by the liquidators of that company against the Bank of England, seeking damages, claiming that the bank had acted with misfeasance by allowing the BCCI to operate with gross disregard for its depositors and its creditors. And prior to that litigation and prior to the appointment of the liquidators, there had been a statutory inquiry carried out by Lord Justice Bingham and the Bank of England had been asked to participate in that inquiry, and it established its own banking in Bingham Inquiry Unit within the bank. And an application was made for discovery by the liquidators of BCCI against the bank, and that order was made. And the bank claimed privilege over a number of categories of documents. They firstly claimed privilege over documents which passed between the bank, the Bingham Inquiry Unit, and the external counsel and solicitors who were Freshfields, who had been retained to advise them. But they also claimed... Uh, privilege over documents which people working within the bank but not working within the banking inquiry unit had prepared which were intended to be submitted to, the, uh, to Freshfields and to the council retained by Freshfields. And I think in a decision which was greeted with a certain amount of surprise and has been since then, the court held that litigation legal advice privilege applies to communications between the solicitor and the client for the purposes of legal advice, but the client in this case was not the Bank of England. The client in this case was the Bingham Inquiry Unit. And so any, specific, any communications or any documents which had been prepared by employees not working within the Bingham Inquiry Unit, which had been sent to Freshfields or which were intended to be sent to Freshfields, wouldn't be covered by uh, legal advice privilege. And that could... Uh, that, I mean, that, that case met with... Uh, I think it's fair to say universal academic surprise um, at the, because of the consequence of withdrawing a distinction. If you take any um, institution or a, any company, one tends to take that, that company or institution as a single entity. And when, the, when lawyers are retained by that entity, one thinks of that entity as being the client rather than the individual unit within that uh, entity being the client, especially when that individual doesn't have any legal status of it's not a separate incorporated uh, body of its own. Uh, and one could see a situation, I suppose, theoretically, where if a specific unit is set up within a bank, say, to deal with a specific type of uh, specific inquiry that has arisen, say, for example, a banking inquiry, if the logic that was applied in the BCCI case 
was applied in this jurisdiction, one could theoretically see a situation whereby the client, for the purpose of legal advice privilege, was the, the unit within the bank which had been established to deal with that inquiry rather than the bank as a whole. Now, that would have huge implications for the way in which that bank interacted with the inquiry. And so if the BCCI decision was followed in this jurisdiction, I think it would have quite obvious implications um, for certain inquiries that may uh, come on in this jurisdiction in the future. Now, whether or not that would be followed is another question altogether. And the courts in this jurisdiction have shown a, a keener desire to protect privilege um, and legal advice privilege in particular than perhaps uh, is shown um, in, in the neighbouring jurisdiction. An, an example of that is the judgment of the Supreme Court given by Judge Fenley in the Fife's against uh, DCC litigation, which involved, as I'm sure you know, allegations of insider trading uh, made uh, against DCC. And DCC had participated in an um, inquiry set up by the Irish Stock Exchange, and in the course of that inquiry had submitted documents to the Irish Stock Exchange dealing with certain allegations that we made against it. And discovery was sought of those documents. And once the order was made, DCC claimed privilege over those documents and said, well, they're the subject of legal advice privilege. And the point was made, well, you've disclosed them to somebody else. You've disclosed them to a third party outside the remit of your client entity. If you've done that, that amounts to a general waiver of privilege. So you can't now claim legal advice privilege over documents which you've already given to a third party. And Judge Fenley made the point in that case, that, that doesn't arise. There isn't a principle in Irish law which says that once you disclose a document which is the subject of legal advice privilege to a third party, then you can no longer claim privilege over that document at all. The court says you have to look at the purposes for which that privilege or the document was disclosed, and if it was disclosed for a limited purpose, for in a specific context, then it would be hard to see how any general waiver uh, would arise. And he made the point that in the course of that case, the council had accepted that uh, a, a client or someone involved in litigation who wanted to fund that litigation could validly disclose to the bank legal advice that it had received in, in relation to the merits of that litigation in order to get persuade the bank to give it, uh, to give it a loan. And the court ha uh, held that, well, if you make that concession, if you accept that disclosure to some third party doesn't amount to a general waiver, then there isn't a principle that disclosure to any third party amounts to a general waiver. And there's an interesting case um, which is quoted not in that decision but in a subsequent decision, the case of Australian Rugby Union against uh, Hospital Property Limited, where the court held, and this has been cited in English uh, cases, if you disclose or if discussions are had between a lawyer and a client which would otherwise be the subject of legal advice privilege, but those discussions are had in the presence of a third party, somebody who isn't, somebody who works within the organization or someone who isn't a client, that again doesn't amount to a general waiver of privilege. It, there has to be an intentional disclosure by the party concerned of the documents um, with the knowledge that is intended to lose privilege. So the, the courts in Ireland have guarded perhaps more closely than in England the concept of legal advice privilege. Um, very quickly, there's the, we come then to litigation privilege and the definition of what litigation privilege uh, is, is given there. And the key distinction between litigation privilege and legal advice privilege is that communications between the lawyer and a third party, which are, have the, their dominant purpose, the preparation for or in contemplation of litigation, are covered by legal advice privilege. 
And so the example that I spoke of at the beginning, where a, a solicitor seeks, a, uh, seeks to draw upon the input of an expert advisor, which wouldn't be subject to legal advice privilege, where that um, guidance is sought or where that input is sought for the purposes of preparing for a case and that the dominant purpose of the communication is to prepare for the case, that would be the subject of, of litigation privilege. The key factor is, is determining when can it be said that litigation is apprehended. And you see the definitions there, that the, the quotes that are used are, is there a real likelihood? Or is there, um, I think in the United States of America, against Philip Morris, they said, real likelihood, when the judge says real likelihood, he certainly wasn't saying there must have been a greater than 50% chance of litigation. In each of those cases, and also in the Alfred Crompton case, they didn't so much focus on how far in advance of the litigation the communication was entered into. They asked what was the state of the parties' relations, of the, the counterparties to the dispute's relations at the time in which the communication was made. And so in Alfred Crompton, <clears throat> a communication was made, I think, in 19... The case was in the 60s. A particular communication took place between um, Alfred Crompton and their accountants, uh, I think two years before the litigation began. And Alfred Crompton claimed privilege over, the, uh, over that uh, communication and uh, asserted legal litigation privilege over it. And the court held that while that was two years before the case began, and so prima facie one would have thought litigation couldn't be possibly be apprehended two years in advance of the commencement of the case. In fact, because the parties' relations were so bad at that stage, the court, had formed, the view, the court formed the view that there was, in fact, a real likelihood that litigation was going to ensue, notwithstanding that it took a further two years to ensue at that stage. The parties were already engaged in the preparation of their litigation um, once the communication was made. Another important point is that if you prepare a report that is prepared, and you see the quote there, the case there, which is the Secretary of State for Trade against Baker, that considered the question of what is the dominant purpose of a particular document. In that case, it concerned the collapse of uh, Bering's Bank PLC, and the uh, Secretary of State had appointed, had, um, I think, an officer appointed by the Secretary of State had carried out an inquiry into the, uh, into the collapse of the bank under a specific statutory uh, provision. And the court, they claimed privilege over that, uh, over that report because they said, look, it refers to litigation. In the report, we actually talk about the possibility of bringing cases against named directors. And the court held that where you prepared a report or any document pursuant to a specific statutory obligation, then the dominant purpose of that report is compliance with the statutory obligation. It isn't the contemplation of litigation, notwithstanding that you might actually contemplate lit litigation in the, in the report itself. And that, I think, has consequences for, for each of the uh, lawyers here, because there are many contexts in which companies uh, and regulated entities prepare reports pursuant to specific statutory obligations um, where they might refer to litigation. And that's the end of my talk, ladies and gentlemen. There are other sections which deal with the extent to which legal advice given by in-house counsel must be um, seen to be impartial or independent in order to attract litigation of uh, legal advice privilege. That is a phenomenon which is known only, uh, well, I think Maureen's going to cover that insofar as it applies to ECE competition cases, but insofar as ordinary commercial litigation is concerned, it's known only really in Australia, and it's mentioned just to draw a distinction between or to act as a contrast between what happens in Ireland and what happens in Australia. So um, at the moment, I don't think it's likely to be applied in Ireland. Thank you very much.
Thanks, Andrew. It's lovely to see so many of you here today. Um, you know why I'm here. Um, <clears throat> the EU rules on privilege are different. And in the context of a competition law investigation, generally privilege will not attach to communications from and to in-house counsel. Now, this is a complicated area of law, and my aim today is to send you away so that you know when your legal advice might be at risk and what you can do to best protect your clients. We're going to look at what the European courts have said in this area and what it means for you. Also, as I have a captive audience here this morning, I thought I'd share some of my own thoughts on how I think the law in this area might develop. I'll also share some practical tips on what you can do if you find yourself faced with an internal competition law investigation or, worst case scenario, the European Commission or the Competition Authority come knocking on your door and present you with a search warrant. Now, bear with me while I um, set the stage here. I want to be very clear what we are and what we're not talking about in this context. So, um, straightforward enough, we have the law. A subcategory of the law is competition law, and within that subcategory, we have another subcategory, European competition law. We are only talking about European competition law here this morning. And in the context of European competition law, in European Commission-led investigations, communications to and from in-house counsel generally do not attract the protection of legal privilege. What do I mean by European Commission-led investigations? So in the context of this subcategory, European competition law, there are two competent competition agencies for the enforcement of European law in Ireland. The first is obviously the Irish Competition Authority, which has a national focus. And then we have the European Commission, which has a cross-border focus. Now, the European Commission obviously has jurisdiction to investigate breaches of European competition law in Ireland. That would clearly be a European Commission-led investigation. The European Commission could ask the Irish Competition Authority to assist it in its investigation. And again, that would be a European Commission-led investigation. The Irish Competition Authority, however, also has competence to investigate breaches of European, commission, sorry, European competition law. But in that scenario, it'll do so under its powers in the Competition Act, the Irish Competition Act. And that would not be a European Commission-led investigation. So to be clear, in a scenario when the Irish Competition Authority is conducting a competition law investigation, it must respect Irish law and the Irish rules on privilege. So in terms of the scope of privilege in the context of European Commission-led investigations, what have the European courts said?
the first case, AM, AM&S Europe. That case arose out of a dawn raid by the European Commission, which raided the um, Bristol offices of the company, and following that made a request for various documents, a written request for various documents. And the company tried to resist disclosing a number of those documents on the basis of on the basis that they were protected by legal privilege, including communications with its external counsel. Now, the European Commission refused to accept that it did not have the right to view those documents, including those from external counsel. The dispute found its way before the European Court of Justice, the ECJ, and the ECJ recognised the principle of privilege in the European legal order. In doing that, it looked across the member states to see what, privilege, what, what rules applied across, um, what common rules applied across Europe. And in that context, it identified two key principles. And those two key principles determined the scope of European privilege rules. The first rule identified by, by the ECJ was that communications, privilege attaches only to communications made for the purposes and in the interests of the protection of clients' rights of defence. And now for the controversial bit. The court also said that only those communications from independent lawyers are protected by EU privilege. Now the court said that an independent lawyer is one that is not bound by the relationship of employment. So critically here, the European Court was saying in-house lawyers, because they are employees, are not sufficiently independent to fall within the scope of EU rules of privilege. The other point made by the court was that the scope of EU privilege only extends to lawyers who have the right to practice in Europe. So this issue came up again for consideration some 15 years later in the Axo Noble case, which many of you will, will be familiar with. Um, that case arose following another dawn raid by the European Commission, um, again in the UK, but this time the Commission was assisted by um, the UK's Office of Fair Trading. And in that dawn raid, a load of documents um, were, were seized. And some of those documents were internal emails exchanged between employees of Axo Noble and one of Axo Noble's in-house counsel, who was an advocate of the Netherlands Bar. And it's just worth bearing in mind here that the, um, the Netherlands does recognise that privilege can attach to in-house communications from a lawyer who is admitted to the Netherlands Bar. However, the European Commission again refused to accept that the EU rules on privilege attached to such communications. And again, the case found its way before the European courts. So again, the, commission sorry, the, the courts acknowledged that there was an EU right to privilege. However, that right was limited to independent lawyers. And again, the court reiterated um, its position under EMS 
which essentially said that an in-house lawyer, because he or she is an employee, does not enjoy the same degree of independence as an external lawyer vis-a-vis their clients. And that is because they are bound by this relationship of employment. Again, this was quite controversial, especially among among the common law jurisdictions, Ireland and the UK, who, as Andrew has pointed out, do recognise privilege attaching to to in-house counsel communications. But it's... It's worth bearing in mind that the majority of the European Court, the the, the judges in the European Court come from a civil law background. And again, the court looked, part of its its decision was partly driven by looking across Europe. And the court couldn't identify a general trend in European member states of the protection of in-house legal professional privilege. So I thought it's useful to summarise here just before we we go through how this this actually impacts, how these decisions impact on you. Um, So for competition authority-led investigations, privilege will attach to your communications. But for European Commission-led investigations, there's no privilege. How does this impact on you? Well, in-house lawyers in my experience, are at the coalface of competition investigations. And in my view, the European Court's position on privilege can hamper your ability to conduct um, your initial fact-finding investigation at the very least. At that stage where you identify that there may be a competition problem and you're trying to find out the extent, if any, of um, of that problem, it's very unlikely that you're going to be able to identify whether or not this is an area that the European Commission is going to be interested in and could launch an investigation. So potentially, anything you write down may have to be disclosed to the European Commission in the event they kick off an investigation. Also, Given the confusion around, not so much the confusion, but that people can understandably get confused about what rules apply when, I think there's a real risk that you could waive privilege unnecessarily. And in my experience, companies that come under investigation by competition authorities, be it the Commission or the Irish Competition Authority, can come under pressure, pressure to waive privilege, maybe in the context of their duty to cooperate with the relevant organisation. Um, I'm repeating myself here, but I think, I think it's worth it, because um, it's a key message that I want to get across here. If the Irish Competition Authority comes knocking at your door with a search warrant, they may ask you to hand over all documents, including your communications which would be privileged. You can resist such a request, and if you feel that you are on solid ground, you should stand your ground, because the Irish law on this supports your position. There's also a question of whether a partial waiver 
could possibly be used to, um, to address some, some of the concerns that we're talking about here. And Andrew raised the possibility of partial waiver. But I do wonder to what extent that works in the context of a competition investigation by a regulatory authority that's exercising a, pu a public function, including prosecuting a case. So if you partially waive privilege to the, Europe, to the competition authority over your documents, and those documents find their way into the DPP's file because pro they've decided to prosecute the case, what's the status on privilege then? Equally, if you have to hand documents over to the European Commission because you couldn't assert privilege, what's the status in later Irish proceedings in terms of privilege over those documents. Um, so, for example, in follow-on damages actions. Now, these are quite complicated questions, and it's something I think that Andrew, we, we could maybe explore a bit further in the Q&A with Andrew afterwards. But just moving on to the future now, unlike the, the little man in the picture, I don't have a crystal ball, but I thought I'd share some of my own thoughts on where this, the, this area of law might go. What about non-competition cases? I can't see any reason why EU rules on privilege would be limited to investigations by the European Commission. Why would it not extend to other areas where the European sorry, why would it not extend to other areas where the European Commission has the power to seize documents? Equally, why just the European Commission? What about other bodies that have been created under EU law and would be given the power? to seize documents or powers of invest other powers of investigation. And the one that jumps to mind in the present um, climate is the ECB, which is a bit of a scary thought. Um, in my view, the position on in-house privilege is unlikely to change in the foreseeable future. We've seen a recent case just a couple of years ago where the European Court of Justice refused to accept um, that in-house counsel had the right to represent their own clients before the courts and relied on Axo Noble, refer back to Axo Noble in this regard. Um, that said, if we see a greater move on the part of member states towards the recognition of in-house legal professional privilege, um, the court's approach on this may change. And just on this, there was a, a recent case um, where the Belgian Court of Appeal did recognise LLP. But on my count, there's only about four or five jurisdictions currently who recognise in-house LLP. So we've got some way to go, I think, before we see any move on that front. Um, going back to where we are now, the current position. Um, consider a hypothetical scenario, and it's based on a true story. You overhear somebody in the business mentioned to their manager that there's no wiggle room on discounting that particular product because the price has always been set at the level of the, insert the name of the trademark association, gulp. Um, you're facing a possible competition concern. Hopefully in that scenario, you'll already have been following all the general guidance on the protection of privilege. And there's a nice handout in your pack which um, gives you some, some top tips on that front. Um, but what else could or should you be doing? In most cases I've been involved in, the first thing in-house counsel does, as I said, is to conduct an internal investigation. Now, 
Bear in mind that at that point, as I said, you're unlikely to know whether any possible investigation would be commission-led or competition authority-led. So potentially anything you put down on paper might have to be disclosed to the European Commission. So the, to the extent you can, conduct that initial fact-finding orally only. And I know it's going to sound self-serving. It's not. If you want to best protect your client's position, then you need to involve external EU-qualified counsel as early as possible. When I was working, just on that point, when I was working in um, Allen and Overy in London, um, I regularly acted as EU counsel to major U US and Japanese companies who would have had highly experienced and expert antitrust in-house counsel, but they would not have fallen under the banner of the protection of the EU um, rules on privilege. Now, I'm not suggesting for a minute that I wasn't also instructed because of my um, insights and expertise in, in EU antitrust law. However, my EU qualification certainly was an important point here. On external investigations, dawn raids, make sure you determine the legal basis for the investigation. Is it EU or is it Irish law? And on that basis, you can then know how and why to claim legal professional privilege over your documents and how to explain to the authorities, because they will look to be convinced. The European Commission will generally want to see some sort of evidence, so that might be your head, the headed paper of your external counsel, um, before they will accept that um, privilege would attach. If there's a dispute, you can come up with a procedure um, to resolve that dispute, for example, putting the, the documents um, in question in a sealed envelope or an encrypted file, um, generally these days, and agree a procedure as to how it will be resolved. The European Commission actually has a procedure that it follows in these circumstances. Just a final word of warning. Remember that in an investigation, in a competition investigation by either the Commission or the authority, you have a duty to cooperate, and it can be a fine line. But if you are confident that legal professional privilege attaches to the documents that the particular authority is requesting you hand over, you should stand your ground and assert that right of defence. I'm going to leave you with the top three takeaways that I would like you to take from this presentation, even if you forget everything else I've said. Thank you very much. Thank you, Maureen, and good morning, everybody. I am going to give you a practical guide through discovery, and basically, I think you'll all have to appreciate it's going to be the bane of your life if it hasn't been already. For in-house counsel, it effectively means more time being spent in something you'd rather not be involved in at all. It probably means more costs and a budget that you haven't taken into account before that year. And it also means your colleagues hate you by the end of the process because you're digging around looking for information that they could be, their time could be better spent doing something actually beneficial for the business. 
I think what has to guide you through all of this when you're doing it is at the end of this process, somebody is going to be sitting down writing a list of the documents you actually say you're going to discover, writing a list of the documents you say are privileged, and writing a list of the documents you say you had but no longer have. So there is obviously a, a process, and you're going to get caught out if you get it wrong going through that process. Before I go into what I'm actually going to discuss, I'm going to just point out reasons for doing this and for not getting it wrong. In Order 31, Rule 21 of the Rules of Superior Courts, it points out that if you fail to comply with the obligations, you're liable to attachment. You could have your action dismissed or you could have the defence struck out. So these are fairly serious consequences. Now, it's actually quite rare that a defence or proceedings will actually be struck out, but it has happened in the past. What is more likely to happen, and the rules are set up to secure compliance rather as a punishment, but you may find yourself paying the costs that flow from any failure to comply with the discovery request or the discovery order. And whilst that might not seem like a punishment, when you're putting your hand in your pocket, it actually will feel like a punishment. Very briefly, I'm going to discuss the theme of claim, which Declan already mentioned, which has taken up quite a lot of the last few years of my life. I'm going to mention pre-discovery, which is all important and which will help you cut back on the costs eventually. I'm going to mention EDRM, which is the process you can follow. I'm then going to mention discovery briefly, and then I'm going to go into smoking guns and what you might have actually found by way of the, the process. First of all, I'm going to mention this man quite a lot, so I thought I'd put a picture of him up there. Depicting as the, the Joker might be slightly misleading, as he did steal $17 billion from various investors. By way of the process, I'm going to talk through when we started out with the discovery process. As Declan said, there were about 75 million documents. At the end, we whittled it down between all the parties to, I think, just in excess of about a million, which arguably, if we'd had to look through 75 million, we'd still be doing it and it would cost you an absolute fortune. So, before you even get to the affidavit stage, your team is obviously going to have to review all of this documentation. So, how you go about that is all important and how you actually get back on the costs. This is a graph, and you probably can't read everything that's actually on it, but this is just to show the amount of service providers and the amount of affiliates to different corporations that you might actually find yourself having to go to to look for the information. This is from the Thema Fund. I'd imagine if I put up any corporate entity and their, their graphs, you'd get a fairly much the same level of complexity. So you need to go through all of these. As in-house counsel, your job is going to be to find out where the information is, and you're going to need to find it as quickly as possible and as early as possible. But ultimately, when you do that, and if you do it right, you're going to be able to reduce the ultimate cost. You're going to be able to reduce the pain you're suffering through all of this. And that's probably the most important aspect. The first thing you have to do is the litigation holds letter. So when you get a claim in, and it's probable that there's going to be proceedings, not a mere possibility, but actually probable, then you have to sit down and discuss what's going to be in a litigation holds letter that you need to send internally. There's actually a story about how to figure out what is merely possible and what is probable, and I think it's in Andrew's book, and they talk about a cookie company and receiving 200 complaints about your cookies, and if there's no follow-on litigation, then if you get the 201st one, it's merely a possibility that there might be, and it's not probable, so you probably don't have to act on it. I'm not sure how that'll help any of you, unless you're actually in the cookie trade. In terms of what the litigation hold letter should have on it, it should at least have what's listed up on the, on the screen there and what's listed in your, uh, the booklet that you all have. And I'm not going to go through that. But after that is sent out, your difficulty is 
you then have to try and figure out where everything is. So you do have to follow up on that letter. It's actually not sufficient to send it out and rely on the fact that you sent it out. Regardless of the fact that, as you see at the bottom, you get acknowledgements back from various recipients that they've read and understood it and will be bound by the letter. If you're acting for a company, the company cannot hide behind the failures of its employees to actually comply with the discovery process. So if they're inept or if they just don't bother doing anything about it, you can't. That will not be a defence down the line. In effect, in terms of what document might be, it has been said in the past, it may be anything on which the information is written or inscribed, paper, parchment, stone, which reminds me of the Ten Commandments, or metal. Nowadays, that's obviously moved on. We've got a much more varied variety of places where you can actually store information. And the question you have to keep thinking is, what am I? So you need to look through where a variety of information might be. The questionnaire that you send out after the litigation hold letter should probably contain details at least as expansive as these, but possibly more so. You'll see on that it mentions everything from files, diaries, calendars, PDAs, which is not public displays of affection, SIM cards, PowerPoint presentations, which means this could end up in a discovery, God forbid, at some stage. Then, after you do that, you have to actually find out where the document is. That used to be a lot easier. You used to go into the cellar and you used to look into a few boxes and you had your documents. Nowadays, it could literally be anywhere. Obviously, you have to ask people, is it in your briefcase, which is fairly clear. People now use a lot more personal email accounts. If they have, you need to get their encryption codes. There's IT systems, there's Facebook, there's Skype. Uh, Skype, I only realised lately because my 10-year-old told me that you can actually send texts on Skype. You have to know these sort of things. If they're using some sort of cloud server, as in Dropbox, you have to be aware of that. You probably have to send a letter to Dropbox if this comes up. And you have to actually stop them getting rid of information as well. But your difficulty in all of that is, in a lot of corporations nowadays, they do use cloud service uh, servers, and people use Dropbox and a variety of other means to, to share information. And I'd suggest now what you need to do is go through the company, see how you're using this process, and actually take a list and keep a list just for the day that you actually do find yourself at the, at the end of litigation. And clearly, if you do this right, you won't be chasing your tail at a later date. You also need to send a retention letter to the other side. This is where it actually comes in useful in terms of being a weapon in discovery. As you're suffering a lot of pain going through this process, you might as well put the other side under a bit of pain as well and put them under a bit of stress. And once you send the letter to them, they will then have to start going through that process themselves. They're going to have to start incurring their own set of costs, which is never ideal. After that, you need to agree with the other sides, or you typically agree with the other sides these days, particularly in large-scale discovery, how to collate the information. And that's going to bring me on to EDRM in a moment. What we actually had in the Madoff proceedings was a lot of the documentation was saved in a server or on a server in Geneva, in Geneva and in Switzerland, they have very strict laws about what you can actually release from a data perspective. If you breach the laws, one of the directors could actually end up in jail for criminal, uh, for criminal fault. And so if any of your companies have outreaches like that or have affiliates in other countries and you're going to release information, again, you need to know that because if you get to a result where a board member is actually in jail, you're going to be the most unpopular person in the building. EDRM, the Electronic Discovery Reference Model. The advantage of this is it's fairly common sense. It's fairly, it's pretty much going through the process you would have gone through beforehand before they came up with e-discovery and emails and electronic filing. But it is globally recognised. It's recognised 
everywhere you can go to. And the useful thing is, at least then you know that everyone's following the exact same process. So what you really want to do is you just want to sit down with the other side. You want to discuss with them what sort of process they're going to use. You want to push something like this on them to, to encourage it. And the idea behind all of this is, ultimately, you will hope you'll be handing documents over to each other. They'll all be trackable. They'll all be searchable. I'm no IT expert, but apparently the metadata within it is particularly helpful, according to my, my IT colleagues. You'll also, at this stage, be having discovery conferences with the other side. Now, these are endless, and they are usually exceptionally dull. It's the IT people talking at each other about what they might be able to do and what they should be doing in terms of collating the documentation. This is when you probably want to get your e-discovery service providers involved. There are quite a lot of them in Ireland at the moment. There's actually quite a lot of them in the UK as well that do work in Ireland. I get the impression now that they can do the work anywhere in the world. They don't actually need to get in a plane. You can just send a box that plugs into the whatever machine you have in another country. And you should shop around on this because they all do deals and they are all becoming quite competitive, particularly as the market expands. It's during these discovery conferences that you realise just how important the litigation hold letter was and the questionnaire was because you need to be able to explain what you've done and you'll be grilled on what you've done and it won't be your external counsel who get grilled, they'll actually go after the in-house counsel to make sure that they actually understood what was carried out and if you get it wrong you'll find yourself in court, you'll find yourself explaining to a judge what you did, why you didn't do something and why you might have failed to actually comply with an ultimate order. Something similar happened in the Pyrite case which I'll mention later on and Apart from being, it'll be costly in the long run, it's also quite embarrassing. If you do all this correctly, you should be able to avoid disputes. If you avoid disputes, you avoid ex excessive costs. Well, that certainly is the hope. When you're doing this, you have to make sure that you're going through the process in the correct manner. So you have to keep in mind in terms of what would a court actually order when you get to agreeing on the discovery stage. Luckily, in the Madoff proceedings, there was only one major dispute down the line, and I really do think this is because we went through the, the discovery protocol, and we went through the process, and we went through the conference. One, I think everyone got to know each other, so we could talk about things slightly more freely than you can in a normal litigation process or in a smaller litigation process. But there was only one dispute in the end. That was on a procurement issue. The Order 31 was amended slightly. They added the word procurement a few years ago. For the fund, they said, well, that clearly means that HSBC, who, to be fair to that day, had given quite a lot of discovered, uh, discovery already from a variety of jurisdictions. But what they said was, well, you have to go off to the US now and get it from HSBC New York. And Judge Charlton actually agreed with that, and he said, you can do that, but it's limited to a class of documents demonstrated to be central to the just disposal of this litigation. That was appealed by HSBC, and the Supreme Court agreed with HSBC and said they don't have to, that's a separate legal entity. They also said the rule change was designed simply to, hire, to bring the form of rule into conformity with normal usage. It's only now you get to the actual discovery stage. So this has been going on for months and months. At this stage, you then have to agree the actual categories. Now, to agree the categories, you have to again keep in mind Order 31 because it really is only what you can procure, what's in your power of possession, or what you can actually have or, or sorry, had in the past and have lost. So... As an example, in the case of Doohan and Radius television production, which I'm absolutely sure I've pronounced incorrectly, you'll see there at the end of that quote there's the power of possession or procurement issue. What is also in that is the reference to justice and proper proportion. And that is also important because the courts will have an eye for the proportionality 
of the discovery you're actually agreeing to. As Judge Fennelly said in Ryanair v. Rienta, public interest in the proper administration of justice is not confined to the relentless search for the perfect truth. So you absolutely cannot keep going back to the other side and demanding on a pure whim documents that you think they might have or that you're suspicious they might have. There actually has to be reasons for it. You can't go in a fishing exposition. What is important for in-house counsel and your advisors is you have to keep this in mind because a lot of the time you'll have a voluntary discovery process which you have to go through before or hopefully not before you go to the court but hopefully you can agree it before having to apply to the court. You don't want to agree something that's too broad. You don't want to agree timelines that will put you under more pressure. You certainly don't want to I mean, even adding a month to some discovery processes could add 100,000 to the cost of the process itself. So you really don't want to do that. You want to keep an idea of what would a court actually order if you ended up in front of it. Once you've agreed all this, and if there's a court order, or if you've actually agreed something with the other side, you need to recall that if you get it wrong, it'll all come out in the court. You'll end up in front of a judge. In one of the prior cases, Manoli Holmes, Judge Gilligan said about the other side and about the solicitors, there has been a most cavalier, reckless attempt by the plaintiffs to comply with their discovery obligations. That's awful. I mean, you absolutely don't want yourself on the receiving end of that. He went on to, he carried on, and this would have been covered if they'd gone through the, the process itself, but he pointed out that no one had actually told them what their obligations were. They had let the client decide what were privileged documents. They had let the client decide what should be shown to the other side. They had basically let the other side do, or their, their client do everything they wanted with no real input of any use. So he went on about that for quite a while. Clearly in that case there were also cost risk because if the cost flow from your failure you might get hit with the cost. Now I think luckily in Manoli Homes the other side were equally culpable for a variety of discovery flaws so that didn't happen. So you get to that stage, you still have to review the documentation. Certainly in the Madoff proceedings we ended up for about 10 months with, I would imagine, amongst the parties in excess of 100 people going through the process. And, it, I mean, that's in terms of redacting confidential information. That's in terms of making sure you're, you're keeping an eye on what is or is not privileged documentation. But at the same time, again, as I've said, it started off with 75 million documents. It was whittled down dramatically to about 1 million documents. And that really does make all the difference. It's actually at this stage as well where you should consider how you review the documents because in a lot of cases you don't need solicitors sitting around doing that. You can get junior barristers, you can get ex-interns of very firm, various uh, companies. We've done this a few times, it's actually worked out quite well. But I think it's still important that what you hand these people is as little information as possible. Obviously keeping in mind the discovery obligations. And whilst my maths is awful, I earlier on tried to tot up if you had 10 barristers working for 50 euros per hour for seven hours a day, one week could cost you in the region of about 17,000 euros. That is not taking into account what the solicitors are doing in the background, what the e-discovery experts are doing. So the cost can have huge ramifications in how you actually run the, the proceedings. And I suppose one of the takeaways in all of this is if you get the pre-discovery steps right, you're going to be in a much stronger position when you actually get to that stage. So, basically, why would you do all this? It's going to be less cost, it's going to be less delays, and it's going to be less pain. In terms of less delays, if you actually need to delay the proceedings for any reason, you need to reconsider your whole tactics, because obviously there's a, there's a completely different approach at that stage. And whilst I wouldn't encourage us, there obviously are ways and means to, to slow things down. Now, smoking guns. I put this in just to give you hope when you're again, back in that basement and you're elbow deep in random documents and you're actually finding absolutely nothing. 
Without a doubt, Discovery at times can find you information that will win or lose a case. Unfortunately, it'll also, as I said, it could lose you the case. But anyway, you're, you're kind of stuck with that. On the other side, you might find documents from the other side that will also win you the case. Particularly nowadays, the judges are more and more making reference to red flags. They're actually going out to counsel, such as Andrew, and saying, will you tell us what the red flags are to try and skip ahead past, you know, during the openings, they'll say what you actually think are your pertinent points before we go through all of this. That is extremely important. Certainly in Madoff, Judge Charlton said, give me booklets containing your red flags. If we hadn't gone through the whole process in the first place, it would have been very hard to actually find all of those. Now, obviously you're going to fight with the other side about what is a red flag. They also have a phrase of white flags. So you find yourself throwing in white flags as well and trying to argue that a red flag is actually a white flag. But after you get over all of that rigmarole, you will be in a stronger position. Obviously, putting your best foot forward with a judge and putting the judge in a position where he's read all of this beforehand is a huge advantage at the best of times. Of course, in Madoff, we were ordered to do that. If you're not ordered to do it, for God's sake, make sure you know where your red flags are before you go to the other side and say, let's, let's all present our red flags to each other, because you, you could find yourself in serious difficulties when you start looking through your own documentation and find out you're, you, you don't have the best case anyway. So... Red flags that we did find, or that we thought we found in Madoff, it's settled in the end, so I'm not too sure if these were red flags. Clearly HSBC, and actually I think there are one or two people here from HSBC, so apologies in advance. These are what we considered red flags. These were read out in court. Council for the Fund really heavily relied on these and referenced them on multiple occasions. Reuters picked up on this. Bloomberg picked up on this. So things like the fraud risk to us is huge, it's a possible Ponzi scheme, clearly that is something that you might be quite pleased to see coming across the table at you. There were also the KPMG reports which are in the next slide. These were referenced largely in the US trustees action. The US trustee was appointed to administer the Madoff estate in the US and this is something you should also keep in mind if you have a US affiliate. In America they publish everything. So you can get your hands on the depositions. You can get your hands on various references. You can use those in your case. And certainly, counsel for the, for the fund in, that, in the matter of proceedings did. There were things like risk of falsification of mandates, embezzlement, fabrication instructions, manipulation of stock prices, and sham trades. Now, in the round that had been going on for 30 years, and Madoff was guilty for pretty much every single one of those. So, largely speaking, they were on the ball, but none of the parties involved actually had picked up on that. I think in general nobody had picked up on that, uh, despite the fact that in hindsight a lot of people said people should have. This itself was what Maddow said about all this. He said, in today's regulatory environment, it's virtually impossible to violate rules. Now, ironically, in the J.P. Morgan claim form, it was noticed that a J.P. Morgan individual, I think it was a J.P. Morgan individual, picked up on this quote and said, in the document, he said, can you not look at this? This is clearly a red flag. Why in God's name would Maddow actually be referring to this if... He didn't actually think that he was doing this in the background. I then, just to balance the scales, because I, I, I feel I've been slightly cruel to HSBC, the, recently the, the US trustee has, uh, well, sorry, the Department of State Affairs in America have fined JP Morgan, I think it's one and a half billion. They made some huge settlement recently, and with typical understatement, they said JP Morgan as an institution failed and failed miserably. Clearly, if you are now suing JP Morgan under the back of one of these, you could use this sort of information. It's not strictly speaking within the discovery remit, but it is of potential relevance. So to wrap it up, if I had any takeaways, I think you can
can find red flags, you might be spending an absolute fortune. Red flags absolutely help. You might find one document that makes all the difference. One document could pay for the whole discovery costs. It's just a matter of having to go through the painful process to find it. Clearly, discovery is painful. It's not going away. It's going to get bigger and bigger. I think with email communications these days, people are seen prone to put down everything that actually comes into their head. So it's not no longer just five letters. It's continuous communications. And you can get your hands on pretty much all of that. But the main thing is, if you plan your pre-discovery in the right way, you will find yourself coming out of this better prepared. It'll cost you less. It'll absolutely cost you less. And there will be less surprises in the end. So that is the end of my talk. There's actually another quick quote on the slide. And sorry, I'll just cover this briefly because I, I know we're out of time. This is effectively what was said about an individual. If you'd read that and you'd just heard this talk and you'd seen the red flags from Madoff, you'd think it was about Madoff. This is actually a quote from War about Warren Buffett, uh, who was the most successful investor of the 20th century. If you read that and that's how he was given the information and you were aware of Madoff, you probably wouldn't have given him any money at all. So I'm going to pass over to Declan Black, who is going to run the questions and answers. And thank you very much. I'm conscious we've run over time, so um, if anybody has a question, we can maybe take one or two questions. Um, if not, I totally understand on the basis that uh, we have run over time. I can see a certain anxiety to get going for a day's work. So um, there are a lot of MHC people in the room, so if you want to stay and ask anyone a question in that context, you can certainly do so. Um, otherwise, I would ask you uh, to do one thing. Um, you will get the slides by email, and with the slides, you will get an evaluation form. And I'm a great believer uh, in honest feedback, so I'd really encourage you uh, to complete the evaluation form uh, without fear and give us your honest feedback, please, because that's how we can improve these events uh, and make them more relevant and good for you. And obviously you'll get, uh, in addition, there are the handouts in the pack uh, that uh, address some of the salient points. So thank you very much, everybody. Survive. <laughs> 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 How long were you on the board? Um, I'm 10 years. Oh, gosh. Yeah. <laughs>